Hello everyone and welcome to this event about Zambia and the um, economical crisis or is there an economical crisis in Zambia? These people will tell us. Um, we have done this event in cooperation with Schluck and uh, we are very happy to see so many has found their way here. And uh, we have a very good panel. Even we have even a guest all the way from Bergen. Um, and we have uh, our moderator for the evening. It's uh, Ilaria Karokza, and she just finished uh, her PhD at London School of Economics, where she has written about Chinese engagements on the African continent. So I think we should give her a warm round of applause both for finishing. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me and thanks for everyone for coming. Uh, I am joined today by three excellent speakers, um, so I'm not going to steal too much of their time. We have to my right Joseph Buzenga, the Vice President of Southern Africa Students and Youth Development Association and NORIC participant with the Norwegian Students and Academic International Assistance Fund. Then we have Arve Ufstad, uh, diplomat and former ambassador to Zambia from 2011 to 2016. I learned that he's an economist by training and has also worked for CMI, the uh, UNDP, NURA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and freelancing as a visiting researcher at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi, India. And last but not least, Erling Scherneland, senior researcher at CMI in Bergen, focusing on development and development assistance, rising powers in African development, and also has worked extensively on China and Africa. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Before we start, just a couple of uh, housekeeping items. The event will be recorded, and then the podcast will be available on the website in the next um, few days. Um, the event is roughly divided into three parts. Uh, first, the speakers are going to talk for about 10 minutes each, based on a question that we gave them on a readout before they start. Um, then we're going to have a, uh, we prepared, Hilda and I prepared some um, follow-up questions for, uh, for a, another 20, 30 minutes discussion, and then we'll open up in the last 30 minutes for question and answer from, from you guys. So, um, without further ado, um, the background for this event is that recently concerns have been raised um, that African countries might be unable to repay Chinese loans. And in particular, um, there are three countries uh, that, have, um, that have been um, 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 at the center of the conversation, Zambia, Djibouti and the Congo, uh, where Chinese, loans are the co where Chinese um, uh, loans are the most significant contributor to high risk of uh, actual debt distress. And in, in, in terms of, of Zambia's situation in particular, the debt stock is set to be uh, about 8.7 billion at the end of 2017, of which 6.4 billion from Chinese lenders. Uh, so, against this background, I'm just going to uh, pass it on to Arve. And the question we gave you, uh, on which you can reflect for the next 10 minutes, is how has Zambia developed and how did the country end up in the situation we are seeing today? Quickly being said, <laughs> in 10 minutes, and whatever follow-up, and I like to stand up because I'm also going to use that. I think that's not, it's not important, but I, uh, but I thought that uh, it might help out just by not looking at me. Um, I was asked, uh, the question was, uh, the general question for this one is, the Zambia's booming debt, is uh, China to blame? And that's why I put it, my easy question is, no. Uh, in my opinion, and I'll see what I can 
convince the rest of you about that is that this debt has been contracted by Zambian decision makers and most of it uh, since 2012, so it's fairly recent. Under the uh, uh, last two presidents, uh, Sata and Lungo, Bovos uh, came from the Patriotic Front. But uh, let's take a bit of a closer look. Uh, I am. Um, uh, the outline looks like this, a brief reminder of the political background, briefly on economic history, I have one minute for each of these things. Uh, the growing debt, as it has been uh, growing since 2005, and the point is that in 2005, the high debt that Zambia had built up during the 80s and the 70s was cancelled. Practically all of it, under the so-called high, highly indebted uh, poor country initiative, HIPIC initiative. So they started in 2005, and the debt was, uh, I've seen various figures, but made less than a billion US dollars at least. So how did it get there? What about the Chinese? And I've also been asked to say something about the role of the World Bank and the IMF, if there is anything to say. Um, Political background, I think most of you know it, so I don't need to sort of go far into it. Um, uh, Kent Kaunda ruled for 27 years. Uh, then, uh, since then, Zambia has been a multi-party uh, democracy, a multi-party system. Uh, and they've twice uh, changed not only a president as a head of a party, but also the whole party in power. Which is one of the, which was the first country south of the Sahara, which did so, actually, uh, and it is was seen by the political scientists as a sign of a somewhat more mature democracy. It can be debated, but that's at least uh, something. It's been um, uh, they've had three presidents under the multi-party uh, multi-party movement for democracy: Chiluba, Manawas, and Banda, and then two presidents under the Patriotic Front, as I just mentioned. We get back to that. They claim, not only that they are a democratic party, they also claim they are a beacon of peace in the region. As they have had no armed conflict internally, they had two attempted coup attempts, but no, not successful ones. And uh, they have no... Uh, so, uh, in a region full of Democratic Republic of Congo, even Zimbabwe, Southern Africa, which was for long struggling, Zambia was the, the peaceful country which allowed uh, also the uh, liberation movements to stay there and, uh, and, uh, and work so they were a frontline state. But it's, it's, a, it's a part of sort of the, I think this is, these two things are part of the psyche of, 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 of the uh, uh, Zambian political elite, and that's why I'm making a point out of it. Um, uh, the multi-party uh, MMD party was in power for 20 years with three presidents. I will not go into that one. But the Patriotic Front then took power in 2011. Uh, to the surprise not only of the sitting president Banda, but, but uh, lots of the other, at least the international observers. I heard some Zambians who actually believed that there would be a change. <laughs> but um, but it, was, uh, it, well, it came as a surprise to many. One, even with a relatively, uh, relatively narrow vote. Then he died in 2014, mm -hmm. uh, President Sata. 
and uh, Galunga got elected first as uh, immediately afterwards is a fairly narrow margin and then again on a more permanent basis uh, in 2016 uh, again with a very narrow basis and actually a disputed uh, election which is still sort of challenged by the, by the primary opponents. Uh, you'd say that the, the Zambians normally say themselves they are a liberal country, they're an open-minded country, um, um, there are active uh, civil society, churches are active, uh, other organizations are, are present, but a lot of people keep hinting at that there is a narrowing space, it's, a, it's, a more, it's become a more difficult situation uh, under the last uh, five or, or six years. Uh, Zambia is nevertheless considered, if you look at it in, in a comparative basis in Africa, as a uh, <coughs> middle country many along many of the many of the uh, indicators are being used in terms of good governance. It sort of often ends up somewhere between the middle 20, 25th of all African countries, sometimes up to the 10th, they're never on the top 10. <laughs> In terms of uh, good governance, in terms of corruption, in terms of political stability, etc., etc., stability they are higher up. So it's it's interesting to see how they sort of are uh, not on the extreme good ones, and they are definitely not on the extreme bad ones. At least that's how they see themselves. However, I think two things are important for this discussion. It is uh, one which is at least typical for many other countries, but existing. It's the strong presidency the strong role of the office of the president. Much stronger than the Ministry of Finance, much stronger than any other minister, any other spending minister. It's a strong... And, um, and you would, more people would say there is a fair level, I mean, there is a level of corruption and there is a high level of nepotism. And when I spoke about the different parties, you can also, it's also noticeable that many of those who were sitting in government today have been in power before in another party. There is lots of movement from one party to the next. So, it's a lot of people say same, same people, same policies. What I would argue, if you wanted to, uh, is that um, there is hardly any scope for seeing that the, that the system as such is moving towards a Chinese Communist Party model. There was a Secretary General of the, of the Patriotic Front who I think wanted to do that and was moving in that direction, but he established his own party, a minority Labour Party, and never got one more than 1% of the votes. I think that's indicative. And I think it's also a sign that the people, most would people say that uh, this one-party system and this strong state uh, ownership of everything, we've had that on the calendar, we don't want to go there again. In, at independence, to be a middle-income country. Um, then during the Corona period, a lot of things happened. Uh, they took on uh, stronger, uh, they introduced a one-party system, they introduced uh, stronger state control of the economy, they nationalized, uh, but they also came across the closing of the border with the Rhodesia, uh, and, uh, and a lot of other things. But the point is that as a result of all of this, in the 70s and the 80s, Zambia's economy went practically continuously downwards. So that in 1991 they ended up by half of the GDP per capita as they had uh, at independence. They were the highest debt indebted country in Africa 
and they had the highest rate of AIDS. So it was really a, a disaster for most people. Um, then the change came. The 90s was, was seen as a period of slow recovery, but also structural adjustment policies under the guise of the World Bank uh, IMF uh, program, together with the rest of us, <laughs> including Norway. Uh, uh, ended up with a lot of privatization, which was part of that, um, including the mines, which were <coughs> privatized only around year 2000. But as a result of this, they achieved this uh, debt uh, relief, and uh, it was agreed in the 90s, and it came uh, so they didn't have to pay anymore. And then for another five years of, of, of proving to the world that they were uh, now managing their economy reasonably well, the whole debt was cancelled, as I said, 2005. Um, 2005 to 11, the next five, six years, um, was seen as a, as a period of good economic growth from a poor starting, <coughs> starting point, but still they were sort of seen by the economists, uh, Jordan and others, as one of the ten sort of fast-growing economic countries, fast-growing economies. Uh, in Africa. Um, even the tax uh, returns uh, increased. Production in the copper mines ended up by being tripled. Um, and the price of copper also went up, so they were lucky with that in that respect. Um, uh, and, but even that period, most of it, they managed to keep the economy in a fairly balanced rate. They didn't borrow much. Uh, they kept a low and uh, what people are complaining about, and we rightly so, is that with this strong increase uh, in, in, in the economy, still poverty uh, didn't reduce very much. Very slowly. Very slowly. There was some improvement, but very slowly. Then came the change in 2011. I think those are one of the reasons why the, it was trade government again in 2011. And since 2012, there's been a strong increase in... Um, in, in the debt. And this is shown in this chapter here for those who can see. I'm a bit uncertain about the figures, uh, um, uh, but, um, but the general line is given there. They seem to be as high as, as, as 6 billion or so in the, uh, the 2000. Uh, then you can see the debt relief went down to practically zero, and then a slow increase and then from 2012, a fast increase, a fast increase. So that the end of 2018 is even higher than yours, 9.2, 9.4 billion US dollars. Means it's, it's the level of 35% of the GDP, which is actually still not above the threshold in IMF terms for what is a... Is it 40%? That will be 40. If it, will, if it reaches 40, it seems mm -hmm. to sort of be a beyond sustainability. But it's getting there very close. But in addition to the external uh, 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 debt, they also have an internal debt that they borrow from inside. <coughs> uh, and that in itself also is about 19% of the, of, the, of the GDP. But now I'm supposed to sort of say, how do we get there? <laughs> one minute. Uh, I'll use one. Uh, the short uh, answer are, are these. They started off with a fairly good starting point. And I think that was the relatively healthy economy as seen from a macroeconomic point of view. Uh, 
<coughs> and the fact that it had reached the level of so-called high uh, middle income level again, mm -hmm. which means it could not borrow as much from the World Bank and the African Bank as it did before at the same prices. It had to borrow at a high prices. So it went down, and the general situation was that the level of aid was going down. So they found out they were, they were eligible to borrow in the Eurobond market, which they did. First time in 2012, very successfully so, uh, you borrow for a 10-year period and you pay only, which was sort of seen as reasonable, 5.6% interest rate. And then almost a year, a little bit more than a year after, they wanted to repeat the success. This time they wanted to borrow a billion, but this time already the economy was paid starting to falter, and they had to pay 8.6%. And then third time around, so that they reached the 3 billion, uh, they had to pay more, almost 10% interest rate, 9.5 or something. So, and this is a good indication of what people who were lending their money thought about it, and the trust, the falling trust in the, in the economy. And the, all of this has to do with the deteriorating economy and economic shocks in the tw in period 24-25, but not the least also the extreme high level of spending of the of the government. And that's what I blame the, the Satas uh, and the and the Lungos. The uh, Satas idea of development was building roads. Easily said. <laughs> it was a little bit more than that, but very much so. So he was he took all the initiative, he used all the money he could in order to build roads anywhere around the country. And he started that partly with his own money, and then the Chinese come in. So that's, uh, but it was his idea of development without necessarily making the studies of which roads were most necessary, which first, which roads could give a, a higher economic growth for the region, and therefore enable them to pay it back, didn't seem to care. <coughs> and his minister was wrong with it, you know, finance. And same year, 2013-14, he increased the level of um, the, the minimum wage for all <coughs> government workers to a level which is about three times higher than the normal minimum wage in the private sector, because he said that they all working for the government should, should, should make enough money to care for themselves. But for the economy, it meant a high additional cost of the economy, so that the wage bill is, was getting more than 50% of the total uh, state incomes. So again, a policy which is much beyond. And a result of all this additional spendings, additional uh, <coughs> construction, which is not necessarily wrong in itself to, to, to borrow, to, to invest, but it only, it only makes sense if, you, if the result of that is the economic growth will make you, make you pay it back. And that was faulting. So that's why I call poor economic management. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I say it must be related to the political system because it didn't help what the central bank was saying, uh, that this was overspending and uh, beyond, the, beyond the budget. It didn't help even what the Ministry of Finance was saying, because it was a, a decision by the, by the office of the president, which also took control of the, of the road uh, construction company within the office of the president, took it out <coughs> of the Ministry of, of Communication or Building or Construction, whatever it was. Uh, there was economic shocks, uh, true. But, uh, but still, uh, you can also see how the government was continuously losing out and without being willing to, to increase the, the rate. I mean, they managed in 2013, I think, to make sure that the 
fuel price actually reflected the real price of importing it. And from then on, if, if it, the cost went up, they didn't increase the price. So the cost of subsidies on the fuel was continuously rising. The cost of subsidizing electricity was also continuously rising because the middle class was protesting heavily and said they couldn't afford it and said it was difficult for the poor. But in fact, none of the poor, because 75% of, the, of, the, of those who are poor in that country don't have electricity. So for them it didn't matter. Um, but the cost, the subsidies on in energy, the subsidies on fuel, and many also complaining of the subsidies in agriculture, which is not wrong in itself. But as most uh, researchers, even of the Zambians themselves, were saying, they were not very effective in reducing poverty or increasing productivity. So it was a poor use of, of very high costs of the government. So totally <coughs> a huge additional deficit. And uh, if I'm not finishing the story because I'm running out of it, I'll uh, go back to uh, later on, talk about, about <coughs> China in Zambia. Um, building the big football stadium in Dola and um, even contributing uh, to the to the Norwegian-owned uh, hydropower station in Lunsempa. <coughs> and uh, the Chinese ambassador here with a, a delegation of all the Norwegian Youth Party leaders coming to visit in, in, in April 2014. But I'll tell you more about that as we go along. Perfect. Thank you so much for now. Yeah. <laughs> We'll get the chance to, uh, to say more as well later. Yes. Okay, so on next, Joseph, the question, the guiding question we gave you is um, how is the lack of transparency affecting people's trust in the institutions within the country? Yeah, I think uh, uh, for me, I, I, I want to be too quick to mention that uh, I'm not a political uh, pundit uh, like Heavy and uh, anyone. And uh, I do not represent the views of any political party uh, back home in Zambia. I'm just an ordinary citizen that uh, wakes up every morning, uh, gets myself on a bus and uh, ignite conversations with, uh, with total strangers. As uh, that is uh, much of our custom in Zambia to uh, share stories, have social intercourse with, uh, with uh, total strangers which is more unlike in, uh, in, in Norway. I haven't uh, seen people talking much with people that don't know <laughs> uh, in Norway. But uh, we get to discuss matters that hinge on, uh, on the policies that government pass, how they affect the, the ordinary people in terms of uh, their livelihood. Uh, are they affording to uh, put three meals on the table uh, like before. So those are the, are the issues that we, we get to discuss. And uh, really, uh, the honest answer is no. Uh, things have, have gotten so bad that uh, the ordinary people that had hope in uh, improving their livelihood have, have gone to, to the West. And in fact, to put it in a more childish way, I would, I would say things have gone, things have gone to the dogs. Uh, it is no longer the same situation we had uh, in 1991, the same situation we had uh, under the leadership of uh, Kenneth Kaunda, who ruled uh, for 27 years. Uh, things have become very hard. Yes, for a person that has been in Zambia before, and if they went back to Zambia today and spoke to no one, they would go to their respective countries and share stories of how Zambia 
has developed in terms of infrastructure. But often at times Zambians are crying that why do you build roads even where cars are not passing? Are we going to eat roads? Those are the expressions <laughs> of, of, of the ordinary citizens that uh, uh, don't have the ingenuity in terms of uh, the intricacies of, of economics, the demand and supply, the trade balances. To them, the economy is booming if they're able to buy uh, a loaf of bread, if they're able to, to move from one point to the next uh, using uh, 50 cents dollars. For them, the economy would be, would be booming, would be at, uh, at a robust. But if that is not happening, then the question, the operating word is that uh, uh, economically we are not doing well, politically uh, we are not doing well because the politicians don't have the will to better the lives of, of the Zambian people, but uh, possibly to enrich themselves in the most selfish way. Uh, uh, which brings me to, to the trust. Uh, a lot of Zambian people don't have, uh, don't have trust in, uh, in the authorities. I'll give an example of uh, uh, the pro procurement uh, authority. Uh, and this is uh, precipitated by the fact that uh, the, the projects that have been done in terms of construction have been costing more than they should be costing. Okay? Uh, there is a classic example of that uh, of China building a, a modern bridge on, on the sea. And uh, almost the same amount of money that China uh, used to build that bridge was almost the same amount we used to build a road that is, uh, is on a plateau because Zambia is, is a plateau, a high flat uh, table. Uh, we, we, we do not have mountains as, as, as Norway have that uh, we have to do with the mountains <laughs> first in order to build, but our, our earth is, uh, is smooth. It doesn't need much uh, landscaping, so you would only expect that any person of prudence would engage in a project that will spend more uh, because we've got a uh, uh, advantage in, uh, in doing the projects, but we've, we've seen a lot of money spent. And uh, another classic example is that of uh, uh, the fire trucks. We bought uh, fire trucks and this was uh, a hot issue in Zambia. Uh, the fire trucks, uh, uh, through the tender processes, uh, were worth uh, about $350. But surprisingly enough, they were bought at $1 million uh, US dollar each. And everyone was, was, was uh, bamboozled, was, uh, was taken aback as to why we opted to buy fire trucks that were so expensive and yet our education sector was not doing well, and yet the ordinary people could not afford to buy food and put on their table. So if, if I were to answer uh, this question in a nutshell, I would say uh, the situation in Zambia is bad uh, in terms of the economy, uh, and uh, we don't trust our, our authorities, not even the civil society, because... The civil society is, is one area that has totally lost direction because they've aligned themselves to political party. There are those that are pro-government and there are those that are pro-opposition. Uh, and 
they are not objective. They, they don't want to stand for the truth. One day they are supporting something else and the next morning they are supporting, uh, they change their minds and uh, begin supporting something else. So that entails that the levels of, uh, of checks and balances uh, are nothing but uh, haven't been provided effectively by the civil society. And uh, I, 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 I want to end my, uh, uh, my discussion by saying I agree with Avi totally. In fact, I was frantic when I was coming here that I thought that you could say China is to blame uh, for the looming debt in Zambia. Then I say, uh, how then was I going to diplomatically put it that China is, is, is not to blame? But uh, uh, I'm of the view as well that uh, for the debt that is looming in Zambia and uh, almost uh, in all the developing countries that are accessing the debt, China is, is, is not to blame. Of course, I'll be specifying in detail my argument much later as we go on. But I'm of, uh, of the view that China is not to blame. And uh, uh, in as much as they have oblique intentions of doing bad things, uh, it, in a nutshell, China is not to blame. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph. And then uh, next on to Elling. And your question was, uh, is China the one to blame for the debt problems? And what role um, has institutions such as the IMF and World Bank played in this regard? Well, I'll try to stick to uh, those guiding uh, <laughs> questions uh, as I uh, rumble along. But please alert me to when time is expiring, and I'll try to zoom in on the question if I get lost. Anyway, that's uh, that's uh, uh, a picture, airport building, uh, <laughs> where you see both uh, the Bank of China greeting us together with, with Pepsi. Uh, <laughs> but let me. Uh, quickly uh, run through some key features of uh, China's Africa engagement. Um, the most dominant thing and the most manifest thing of the changes that has happened over the past 20 years is the trade volume. Uh, because Africa, from being a, a small trading partner uh, to uh, Africa at the turn of the uh, century or millennium, uh, it is now uh, the biggest uh, trading partner, although it's well behind the European Union. Um, uh, second thing to note is that uh, China's foreign direct investment is much more modest, although it's growing and things may change, uh, but it's much more modest. It's just one of several uh, foreign investors. Um, but where China really stands out is uh, as provider of what we may term development finance. That is mostly loans and credits for infrastructure development. Although there is also some, uh, an aid uh, component there, which I'll come back to. <coughs> and commercially, Africa is pretty marginal uh, for China. Uh, China is very big for Africa, but it's marginal for China. Uh, there are some important exceptions, of course. Uh, Africa is a main supplier uh, of oil and certain other raw materials to China. And it's become a very important market, especially a few years ago, for the construction companies of China. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, 
uh, over capacity uh, in uh, available capacity in the Chinese construction companies and sort of the first regions where I really entered uh, outside China was um, was Africa. <coughs> uh, if you take a further look, uh, I uh, had a look at uh, probably the best but uh, data we have on infrastructure financing in Africa from the World Bank and the African Development <coughs> Bank annual report uh, on this uh, and they sort of estimated that uh, the total funding provided for in physical infrastructure development in Africa uh, in 2017 and China has now quickly emerged as a major provider of that funding. More than half of the increase from 2016 to 2017 came from China, which means that the funding provided by China is comparable to that of the total Western uh, contribution. It's also important to notice that most of um, uh, the Chinese funding is through loans and credits. Some of them are concessional, but all of them is tied to the use of Chinese goods and services. Uh, or at least typically, say for a Chinese export import bank, at least 50%, in some cases it's much higher, but at least 50% shall be tied to Chinese goods and services. But it's important to emphasize that uh, the Chinese uh, dominance here goes well beyond their own financing uh, because increasingly Chinese companies who have managed to get a foothold in, uh, in Africa uh, with, with support from uh, uh, Chinese banks, they are able to win tenders from the World Bank and African Development Bank and bilateral donors. Uh, China concentrates, um, it's actually all sectors in infrastructure, uh, it is very strong in transport and energy, but, and this is important, it has become a main player in the telecommunications sector. Um, the same report estimated that the total funding provided for, uh, for telecommunications uh, uh, in 2017 was uh, uh, you know, 2.4 billion. Uh, Nearly half of that came from China, mostly as loans. Um, and we uh, can see that this is mainly evident through uh, two Chinese companies, CTE and Huawei, providing network equipment and construction for telecommunication uh, uh, development and you know, the physical preconditions for the mobile revolution in Africa. Huawei and, uh, are also a very dominant provider of handsets, but here they have also a number of other Chinese companies and for us unknown brands because although we've heard about the mobile revolutions, most uh, people in Africa do not have uh, access to internet and can rely on smartphones, too expensive and there's no connection, but it's a basic feature phones. Uh, and here uh, China dominates. And importantly, China, through um, um, uh, a company called Star Times, with big on pay uh, television, has become an important player in the digital migration or transition from analog to digital uh, television. Uh, a 
and here they are, uh, you know, this is a market which in Africa is dominated by the French Canal Plus and the South African uh, company Multichoice Naspers. Although it's interesting to note that the South African company got filthy rich by investing in a Chinese company, Tencent, uh, and then they got the money to really uh, uh, become a big player in Africa. It's also important to notice what we do not see when it comes to China and telecommunications in Africa. That's the absence of some key players. The Chinese network operators, China Mobile and all the others, they are not present in Africa. They're not present as network operators. They provide the equipment, but they're not where the big money is being made as operators. Nor do we find the internet content firms that we've learned to hear about from China, you know, the Alibaba, the Tencent, the Weibo, big in China, but also elsewhere in, Af in Asia, not present in Africa, or at least not until now. Uh, the end of the uh, three annual uh, Forum for Africa and China uh, uh, cooperation had its last summit in, in, in Beijing in, in September, uh, where China uh, pledged uh, new funds for the coming three year period. Um, I'll just, both in credit lines, 20 billion and so on, uh, uh, the 15 billion in what they call aid, and that is. Uh, coming from the Chinese development aid budget. 15 billion translates into 5 billion a year. 5 billion US dollars a year is quite significant uh, compared to many other donors. The USA, the world's biggest aid donor in Africa, provides about 12, 13 billion US dollars. And that aid is coming as grants, about a third of the uh, aid is coming as grants. When I say a third, it, that was in the previous from 2011 to 2014, unfortunately, the Chinese they don't provide us with breakdowns, it's own mm -hmm. figures. That's grants, that's technical, that's technical assistance, but mainly training uh, in China, uh, in education, uh, uh, health uh, assistance, and agricultural uh, support. Then uh, it's a series of about 10% of interest free loans, uh, and that depth is usually cancelled after a few years. And that's where you find the football stadiums, uh, mm -hmm. some railways, some prestige projects, and so on. But interestingly, more than 50%, 56% in the last period where we have breakdowns, were provided as what the Chinese call concessional loans. And that is where China uh, provides aid money to the Exim Bank and the Development Bank, the two Chinese policy banks, for them to lower the interest rates when they provide loans to Africa. Debt trap. Um, this has become a key issue in some Asian countries, particularly to the Belt and Road initiatives launched a few years ago, where China is both providing more than 50% of the total depth of certain Asian countries, uh, which has become unsustainable because they reach a certain threshold uh, in relation to the size of the um, economy. You'll find it in, uh, uh, especially in some uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, uh, Cambodia, and so on. Uh, they are in a difficult uh, position. Um, but it's also important to note that the Chinese lending to debt-vulnerable countries in Africa, the so-called HIPIC 
countries. Uh, uh, that is, countries who were heavily indebted and who had the most of the debt, and all the debt cancelled a few years, years ago. It has increased quite dramatically. Um, and China is a major lender to nine African countries in debt distress, and it's a dominant lender to two of these. That is where the dominant means that the um, debt is the, that the loan, the Chinese debt is more than 50% of the debt, and that is at least some GNG booty, possibly also Congo. But uh, let me add this, uh, and that is that China is also concerned about debt sustainability. And that was perhaps most uh, best illustrated by uh, in Kenya, because the China had provided concessional lending through the Exim Bank for the construction of the railway from Mombasa to, um, to Nairobi. That was the first phase. Second phase in Mawasha, I think, which is about or has been just been completed. And the Kenyans, they were keen to see a third phase taking it from Nawasha into Uganda. Uh, so that was the Kenyans. They wanted it, uh, or at least the Kenyan elite, Kenyan government. The Chinese company doing the construction, they were like just like any other company, very keen to also do the third phase. And they are players when it comes to uh, trying to secure funding. And they and they and the uh, the the, um, the uh, Kenyan government had actually drafted a kind of a loan agreement uh, with the Exim Bank, which they hoped to get signed at the recent Fukuk meeting in Beijing. And we don't know uh, what happened behind closed doors, uh, but they came out of that meeting without a signature. And what we learned to know is that China is really concern about the Kenyans' ability to actually sustain uh, that depth. Because all of that depth, all of that loan is tied to the viability of that railway stretch. And China is getting worried, both uh, of the, the uh, insufficient goods being transported on the railway between Mombasa and Nairobi, and also they burn their fingers a bit, or they're worried that they're going to burn their fingers from the uh, railway uh, uh, line from Djibouti to Addis Ababa, and they are now want to have second thoughts. And a complicating factor is also that it's being contemplated to build a railway uh, from um, from Tanzania uh, into Uganda. And is it really viable to have two uh, major railway lines uh, from Uganda? Uh, and this is uh, an indication also that the issue of debt. Is, uh, is of concern to China, particularly when it comes to using uh, concessional funding. Um, <coughs> uh, I just, uh, let me not go, not go through this, but this is uh, something I, uh, I found in some IMF publications from last year, which shows all lending to, uh, uh, to low-income countries and all lending to Hippic countries and look at the yellow column and there you see that Chinese lending is <coughs> expanding significantly but it, when it comes to look at the Hippic countries it's really quite dramatic how Chinese lending has increased over the last few years. Uh, China, some, yeah you said one minute. Um, let me then just 
two in a round run going through China and, uh, and Zambia. Uh, just talk a little bit about uh, the pace of telecommunications. Uh, there's a picture there of Huawei, I think it's outside the headquarters in, in Lusaka. And next to it is Star Times. They uh, are important players in uh, China. They are in, in, in Zambia too. They are uh, companies that has become big players, in the case of Huawei globally, in uh, the case of Star Times in Africa, uh, because of major uh, state support from China. They've been provided with funding to expand. But above all, they've been provided with a lot of funding to invest in research and development. Huawei was a small company 25 years ago. Today, it is the global leader when it comes to uh, the mobile revolution and the transition to the 5G uh, network. Um, and they're important in Africa too. Star Times uh, into pay television and digital transition. Uh, it, uh, it uh, became big in uh, Africa. Uh, it had a bumpy road relations with the Zambian authorities. It first got a contract to, uh, to do the first phase of the digital transition way back in 2012-13, I can't just recall. That eventually, I think, was cancelled. Then they got uh, a contract, was it last year, 200-250 million US dollars funded by the Exim Bank to do the digital uh, transition in Zambia. And that is a main uh, part of funding uh, on the telecommunications sector. Um, they've had difficulties uh, doing this elsewhere in country, uh, elsewhere in Africa, uh, but they won a lot of contracts. I, uh, about the same time as they entered Zambia, they also entered, uh, entered Ghana. They've got a similar contract with the Ghana authorities to be in charge. Uh, eventually the Ghanaian authorities cancelled the award, cancelled the contracts because of the irregularities um, uh, and, and, um, and uh, corruption uh, bribes being paid. Uh, uh, Star Times took the Ghanaian government to court in London. Uh, Star Times lost, uh, Ghana won, uh, and I awarded the contract at a much lower rate to a local company, although I guess with some Western connections to do the job. Uh, and as I was preparing for this yesterday evening, uh, I just wanted to update myself, so I Google, that's what we do these days, uh, <laughs> and uh, to my, perhaps not surprise, but I uh, saw that uh, late last year, uh, Ghana invited the Star Times back to complete the work done by uh, the local company who has done a bad job. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but uh, that takes us to uh, my final point here, uh, namely that there is what characterizes a lot of these Chinese companies and their business practices is A, there's a very little transparency. We don't really know uh, how they do things. They much more easily than Western companies uh, who are operate in more democratic context at home uh, and have to listen to uh, whatever guidelines come out of the stock markets and the stock exchanges and so on. 
uh, it's more difficult for uh, for them to get engaged in uh, uh, corruption activities. That is not the case to the same extent uh, with with um, with, um, with these companies and the telecommunication sector, which is where big bucks are being made these days, is. Uh, uh, a very typical uh, case in point. And if you really want to read more about how this operates, you should go to the uh, website of the uh, Staltens Pensionsfond Utland uh, and their uh, and their committee on um, on ethical guidelines, because they decided two three years ago to disinvest from uh, one of the major Chinese telecommunication companies, ZTE, yeah. and yeah. the. And that report, uh, which lies behind the decision, is in the public domain. You can download it. It's a 15-page document. They go through the examples of uh, how CTE has used uh, bribe uh, and corruption to get contracts. Most of the examples uh, are from Africa. Uh, I'm surprised, perhaps, that there wasn't much new information compared to uh, uh, what we have known from the press and so on. But the interesting thing in that 15-page document is the communication and the reports on the dialogue between the Bank of Norway and SETI. And it's the outcome of that which really made uh, the Bank of Norway decide that let's get out of, uh, uh, of SETI because uh, they have not convinced us that they changed their practice. Um, and uh, at the very end, uh, what does all uh, this add up to? Uh, is China good or bad for Africa? <laughs> um, and uh, the short answer to a uh, very complicated and uh, difficult question is one, uh, there are sort of two key positions. You have one who position which argues that uh, essentially this is a good thing, what China is doing because it brings more money, uh, more investment, uh, contributes to increased growth, increases the bargaining power of African governments, which is a good thing because it weakens also the, uh, uh, the, the power and influence of the traditional colonial powers. Uh, the counter-argument is that what China is doing is essentially just to reinforce traditional patterns of uh, the north-south divide uh, where Africa export raw materials and import processed goods from China. Uh, and then do we have the um, uh, intervening uh, position where I perhaps belong myself which says that you also have to look at the politics of individual countries. Uh, depending on how politics is played out and what role the African state is uh, is playing, uh, things can go different different ways. Uh, China's entry and influence opens up new opportunities, but also causes a new number of new challenges. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so before I open it up um, to the audience, I'm going to use but not abuse my uh, position as a moderator and ask just one question I would like each of you to, um, to answer. Keep it short and sweet. <laughs> uh, and my question is, can we go beyond the often held view that Africans are passive in negotiating with China? And in this particular case, can you say that Zambians are passive? Can you say that the Zambian government is passive when negotiating with China? Uh, or is it a calculated strategic decision, decision that the government has made that in order to promote economic growth, we're going to let the Chinese <coughs> invest in our country? 
Should we go in the order of the, your presentation, Harvey? Would mm -hmm. you like to start? Well, I, I, I definitely don't think that the Zambians are, are passive in, this, in these negotiations. But um, I think the answer is uh, relating to what, even what Joseph was saying, um, uh, the seemingly high costs of some of these investments. Um, and the questionable, you know, who, who decides and how is it decided? Um, the, your, your case of the, uh, of the uh, ZTI. We actually handled in Zambia when I was there, and we had um, lots of negotiations, uh, information gotten from the anti-corruption uh, uh, campaign there. Uh, so it confirms what you were saying. But it's difficult, it's always difficult to know what happens in such decision-making processes. Huh? So, so that's why, you know, you, you, you get a feeling, you, you make a guesswork. Um, the uh, European Union was also heavily involved in, in support to the, to the road sector in Zambia. And uh, they were continuously telling us about their questions. You know, why is this road being built? Why is this contract being made? Etc. How, how, why isn't it more open? And they're continuously asking about it. And the fact that it moved into the, uh, to the office. So, to be blunt, I do believe that there were people in the office of the president who made money of it. Uh, so, uh, and that in that way they combined what you're asking, you know. Yes, SATA and others could show that they are promoting development because, you see, roads are being built, at least half built. Unfortunately, not all of them uh, completed. Uh, uh, so, uh, and of course there is an element of what I said also. I mean, investments in infrastructure is good for the long-term uh, development of a country. Um, so in the long term, maybe even the bad roads are, are, are unnecessary. But, but the decision to make them was you know, a combination of showing the people. And that goes back to, you know, yes, you have to win the next elections. So you show that you are in promoting development. And at the same time, I'm sure that there are people close to the president's office, in the president's office. I don't know whether they himself, that's not the important thing. And in the road construction, the road construction people were even frustrated because they were running from one road to the next and they said, oh, next time the president wanted to build a road there, so they had to sort of move all the equipment over there and then they have to move again. So they were even, even frustrated whether some of them made money, it's hard to say. But I'm sure that some people made money on this and I think that goes for the many of the contracts also. So that's why also I'm saying that warnings against the debt, growing debt, was there was there when I was there in the first few years when I said maybe it wasn't so bad, maybe it was useful. But the economists were very worried and the, many of the political economists and the political scientists were worried because they didn't want to get back to the hippie case. So, so there were warning signs. And what did the IMF do what, if, you, if you want? I mean, IMF has no power there. Um, but as, the, as it was growing, the debt, they would give, started to give warning signals. And when they started to negotiate for a possible loan, a possible one billion, what is one billion going to help against the nine billion? But still, um, so they made the distress studies, etc. So there were enough warning signs, and even from the inside, I think even from the Bank of Zambia. But still, the decision makers went ahead and made these contracts. So obviously, there's been a combination of, of, of interest, political interest to show. And and uh, and others. I don't think there is a sort of a, I don't think there is a sort of a political interest in. I mean, 
Sometimes I wonder, you said it was in hippie countries. Did they, what did they learn from being a hippie country? Did they, what did they learn? Did they learn to avoid be getting there again? Or did they learn to, yes, you can get there and then you get the debt relief. So why, so why, why stop? So, yes, no, I think definitely they knew what they were doing, but they did it because they felt it was, yeah, the for, their, for the good decision at the point. And Joseph, do you agree with that? I mean, you talked about trust earlier, so... Well, uh, well with me, my view is that uh, a passive may be too strong a term to use, mm. but uh, I want to admit that uh, mm. most African countries, Zambia in, uh, in, in particular, uh, are not aggressive at the negotiating uh, table and uh, it all mouths uh, it's all mouth with uh, simple logic mm. uh, we are talking of uh, of, of countries uh, like China that has a GDP of, of 14 trillion mm. and, and and Zambia doesn't speak that language <laughs> we, we, mm. we speak millions and, uh, and and as even as we speak millions we we would not speak uh, about colossal millions but a uh, little millions mm. so uh, we sit on a table and uh, we are more on the receiving side and, and, and not on the giving side. So when we negotiate uh, uh, certain projects, certain loans with, uh, with countries like China, but of course, uh, even other investors, uh, we have everything to lose because we want to receive. Our, our economy uh, wants to, to grow. And uh, China and other investors have nothing to lose. So we end up being bullied at the negotiating table. So uh, matters of uh, aggressiveness, no, we, we are not aggressive. Uh, let me provide a few, a few examples. Uh, uh, we have uh, a mine, first uh, quantum mines, and uh, the government uh, recently introduced uh, sales tax uh, because from before the only VAT applied. And uh, you know that VAT, the way VAT works, is that uh, all the machineries that uh, these uh, mining firms uh, buy from abroad, uh, pay VAT at the border, and uh, government needs to indemnify them of that VAT. But because after the production, there is no VAT when these goods are sold out of the country by those firms. So uh, government remains owing this, uh, these mines. And right now, government is owing about 400 million uh, USD to to these firms and the firms are complaining. So how does government circum circumvent itself from, from uh, owing what it should not be owing? Uh, it introduces sales tax, which now uh, provides a provision of, uh, of, uh, of charging VAT as they uh, export uh, the, the, the products that are made. But uh, 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 first quantum mine is now bullying government that uh, you are taxing us too much. And I think the only way is to lay off some employees. And the proposition is that was that they were going to lay off uh, about 2,500 uh, employees. And it was only today in the morning that uh, First Quantum uh, changed uh, its decision, its uh, position that they were, they were ready to go and negotiate. But the truth of the matter is that even as they go on the table of negotiation, we already know that Zambia is going there to beg because uh, the government doesn't want uh, its people uh, to go unemployed to add to, to the numbers of those that are, uh, are on the streets. So uh, uh, passive, 
uh, may not sound well ostensibly, but uh, I want to use the word we are not aggressive enough. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Ellie, any thoughts on the, how much power do governments really have and does the Zambian government really have in like, negotiating with, with China? I remember many years ago, in the early days of my interest in China and Africa, uh, I was at a reception uh, at a Chinese embassy in, and for now, unnamed Chinese, uh, unnamed African country. It was not Zambia. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, there was a lot to drink, uh, and very late in the evening, uh, after the, the formal reception, uh, I ended up talking to a senior official at the Chinese embassy, a Chinese uh, official, and he knew that I was uh, very into development aid and uh, doing reviews and evaluations of aid interventions. And then he asked me, he had a bit to drink, but he asked me, how do you get Africans to do what you tell them to do? <laughs> uh, and that is an indication that China is also struggling. Um, <laughs> and that there is some agency mm. involved. Uh, uh, and, but more seriously, uh, I think that uh, the entry of China, but also other new powerful uh, South countries mm. uh, who have become uh, expanding in Africa, uh, uh, they had that had, they've contributed to a situation where African governments, elites, are a, they are in a stronger bargaining position. In the past, that is 1980s, 90s, they were forced to rely heavily on advice and directives and opinions from traditional providers of development, finance, bilateral donors, the World Bank, the African Development Banks and so on, often speaking with more or less one voice. Uh, that uh, power of the traditional funders have been weakened. Uh, African uh, governments are therefore in a stronger position. Mm. And they can, to a greater extent than before, well, to some extent, pick and choose. And they can put, look at various options and various funding programs. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the positions of many African governments mm. have increased. Uh, uh, but finally, there is a flip side to it too. Uh, I can use an example from, from telecommunications. Uh, the case of Ethiopia, the single biggest contract provided uh, by any African uh, telecom authority to uh, to a foreign company, to uh, this was linked to the rollout of uh, the mobile uh, cell phone uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, went to China, uh, first phase, CTE, uh, they got the country, they did the job. But we also now, now know that in that first phase, uh, that company just sent off to China second-hand uh, equipment, so old used equipment, at a very high cost. Uh, in the second phase, uh, the Huawei was brought in, so then there was internal Chinese competition uh, and things improved. 
but it also uh, tells us that uh, it can also lead to a situation where uh, you may end up paying more and getting a, a, a weaker solution, which again uh, sends out the, the important message that uh, uh, the, uh, it all depends on the power and the willingness and the commitment of, of African governments to deal with the Chinese. Can I add though, I, though I do think, you know, what we said, I'll stand by it, mm -hmm. but I do think that that Zambia is actually reaching another point, I mean mm -hmm. this tipping point. Mm -hmm. The fact that you may be right in saying that two-thirds of the, of, the, of, the, of the loans are Chinese mm -hmm. owned. I mean they've been desperate, I mean they've been picking up these loans because they were able to, they thought they would be able to, and um, uh, uh, but the, uh, the, the liquidity of the, of the Zambia state has been difficult ever since these 2014-15. Uh, mm -hmm. So increasingly, you know, they've been not been paying their workers until three, four <coughs> months later. They've been delaying pensions. They've been delaying, delaying the, the return of the VAT, which they didn't belong to them. I mean, continuously they've been pushing their money ahead of them. And, but they've been borrowing so that they could continue. They were purchasing very expensive electricity when there was not enough uh, hydropower inside from boats being anchored in, Zam in Mozambique and other places, mm -hmm. you know. So they've been getting towards the brink, and I think now they may be close to the brink. And I think now they, I mean, now you see that they are sort of discussing what can they do with the present. I suppose that's the next question here. What will they do when when the Chinese say no, it's enough? They won't lend them more, but you know you don't pay back. So the issue is. They fund Chinese funded the new terminal at the airport building. They may take may may say that they they will run it. Yeah, I and guess make sure uh, make sure they get the money back. I guess what would happen in Sri Lanka and the Ambantora port. Yes, the yes. That they, don't the country, they don't take over the country. They don't take over the country. But there is, I mean, as far as I've understood, I mean, you know the Chinese a little bit better. But as far as I know, mm -hmm. that they keep a kind of an ownership to the actual physical uh, mm -hmm. material which mm -hmm. they provide. And they keep a sort of a, a link. So, in the power sector, they will not take over Zesco. They will never do that. The whole company, but they may take over and say, "We'll run one of these uh, dams and yeah. uh, sort of and and so sort of build." You know, that's what we're talking about in private per partnership: build, operate, and own mm -hmm. uh, kind of kind of thing. And they are now have to renegotiate. I understand from what you were saying also that some of these loans and credits are being sort of, they can be renegotiated. Mm -hmm. You can get a new loan or an extended loan. Yeah. So they are on that. And then they are more on the begging side. Uh, so I'm seeing that there is, when you've reached this level of, of dependency, then you, are, then you are maybe reaching a little bit more of a begging side. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, again, I promise I will not abuse my time <laughs> and I want to give you guys a chance to ask questions. I will open it up uh, if anyone wants to ask um, and engage with our speakers. Yes, please. Uh, <coughs> my name is Gil I was uh, working on uh, a uh, Norwegian funded project in the Bank of Zambia uh, and returned to Norway. And I was uh, sort of formerly through IMF, so I 
good, good, good contacts with the IMF and uh, I kept my contacts with the IMF people in Zambia and those who follow Zambia in Washington. <coughs> and uh, I, all, uh, since uh, 2014, it's, they've sort of said, well, in three or four months, the Zambian government will have to come to the IMF to get so, some structured <coughs> agreement on, uh, on, on debt relief or additional borrowing. But they've sort of always managed to push it on and mm -hmm. taking up more loans with, with China. Uh, now, to, uh, this week I read in the Zambia report that the finance minister uh, has laid the ground for a more structured engagement with the International Monetary Fund. Uh, so, so uh, it may be the, the Chinese option is also is closing. Uh, so, so uh, uh, well, I, I, th I think the question is, is important. <laughs> what sort of what sort of tools does the Chinese use to be able to get some money back? <laughs> because they clearly expand, uh, extended loans. They cannot hope to get back. Uh, uh, from a normal r running of the government. Mm -hmm. Does any of you want to take this? Not beyond what I just said. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I think the lending for the roads is very difficult to get back, mm -hmm. and the football stadium. They, I think that was a grant anyway. But um, but <coughs> the uh, lending to the power stations. Yeah, I can, like I can see. Assets and like yeah, power yeah. There is a hydropower. Station at Iteji Teji, which they basically funded. Uh, I don't know whether how much they get paying back. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's a part of the problem. They are investing in a huge uh, other uh, lower Kafua Gorge, mm -hmm. uh, a huge power hydropower station, um, which they are funding and constructing and uh, etc. So I can s I can see their that possibilities. Otherwise. You they'll have to do what the other lenders do, you know, turn over, you know. Mm. I, I know Zambia tried to go to Turkey even mm. uh, uh, to see if they could Turkey would take over some of the loans and you know uh, get some deal with them, and I think that was not successful. I think this deal with Russia for the plane is also part of the same thing, you know. Can they make a new friends and and see if they can get something back from there? They didn't get much, I don't think. Um, so. Uh, so I think yeah, no Chinese will be in the same difficulty as, as, as other lenders. You know, they don't. And they don't and IMF will be there by the end of this year. <laughs> well, we, as you said, they've been saying so since 2014. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every every year. But the interesting thing is, you know, people asking, you know, they're afraid of IMF because they they are f they you know this idea of the structural adjustment <laughs> programs of the. Uh, of the uh, of the nineteen twenties, where mm. uh, you know health and schools and everything else was going uh, away, that is, IMF has been extremely careful in these last few years for what is it that they are asking for, and they generally say that you know no, it's not up to us; it's the government to decide. You know, yeah. present us with a budget which is running at a lower deficit. Yeah. Present us with a plan where you can lower it further ahead of time, and then. But they have been worried about the high, uh, the high level of the wage bill. 
They have been worried about these high subsidies and they have been asking for broader taxes beyond the mines. Everybody talks about the taxing the mines in Zambia. Mm. I think too few people are speaking about taxing the rest of the economy, mm. including the uh, providers of, 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 of internet and mobile phones mm. and lots of other well-making. Uh, so broadening the tax base is the term which is being used. So I think those, and those, what shall I say, expectations, suggestions from the IMF are something which I think, I don't know, lots of other people would agree to, <laughs> are reasonable given the situation. But it doesn't happen, and that's the point. It doesn't happen. They don't even listen to the IMF. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of Zambians that ought to pay more taxes. Very rich Zambians have all to pay more taxes, uh, uh, but but they dare, uh, the sort of the the political elite that they uh, tax their friends in the economic elite. I think to 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 react to his his first question uh, in terms of what tools has China put in place uh, in in terms of recovering these loans, uh, many have opined that uh, China is not uh, much interested in, uh, in gaining profits from these loans that it has provided to most of the African countries. But uh, uh, its, its interest is, is uh, geopolitics, mm -hmm. and uh, that is what China wants to, to gain. Uh, it's, it's, it's about the hegemon, and that is why uh, there has been so much talk uh, 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 in the West about uh, how China is uh, is trying to disadvantage most of uh, of, of of this country uh, countries that are borrowing but of course it's uh it's hiding the fact behind the fact that uh it's 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 getting hold of of the collaterals that have been provided uh when accessing these loans and uh and the talks uh in zambia is that uh china is likely to take over from uh, our national uh broadcasting corporation and uh and the airport itself those are the are the talks that have come up though uh, this is something that i've not yet confirmed as to whether china has, uh, has taken over uh, but there are certain indicators that uh, uh, one could draw from the inferences uh, we've seen some uh, chinese people driving uh, uh, vehicles that belong to, to to the national broadcasting corporation and we've seen them driving vehicles that belong to zesco so any a, any ordinary citizen w would assume that uh, China has taken over. Uh, of course, bearing at the back of their minds that uh, uh, we are owing uh, we are owing China in both official loans that pass through the treasury and some loans that are, are, are backdoor loans. And uh, I I want to state to everyone that uh, if you think you know that uh, how much. Zambia owes China, it is not true. No one knows how much Zambia uh, owes China. <laughs> because if you, yeah, because if you went on Google today, others will come back with uh, 8.1 billion, others will come back with uh, 9.1 billion. So the figures are not, uh, are not official. Uh, that is what uh, government has failed uh, to tell us because uh, some of the monies we borrowed uh, have not passed through the treasury, have not been approved by parliament and that is why uh, probably going back to as to whether the the authorities are trustworthy in terms of transparency uh, uh, no because some loans were not approved by parliament yeah so uh, 
China is not interested to, <laughs> to, to recover these loans, but it wants a lot of countries to, to fail so that they could have the influence in those countries. When it comes to these sort of political motivated loans, or where there is a political interest, I mean, China has two policy banks, the Exim Bank uh, and the Development Bank. Uh, and these banks, they are not really allowed to, uh, to lose out uh, when they lend money. They want to recover their loans. There is a state-owned insurance company in China which will cover losses, uh, but the, the message to the bank is that uh, ensure that these loans can be, uh, mm. that they can be uh, mm. able to pay uh, uh, interest on, on them and so on, and, 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 uh, so we don't lose money. Uh, when uh, clients run into a problem, um, uh, there are options of renegotiating the terms, providing new loans. Angola, for example, have provided with new loans from China uh, when they run into problems. Uh, but uh, by and large, I think the Chinese banks, this certainly applies to the commercial banks in China, but also to the policy banks, they, uh, they don't want to end up having to run the Kenyan railways. Uh, that would be a nightmare. Uh, so uh, my reading, uh, and it's just my impression, is that uh, China is becoming much more concerned, much more sensitive about lending mm. to Africa than what they were five years ago. Mm. Uh, because they burned their fingers mm. and they don't want to lose money. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please. Yes, I was just wondering, uh, I thought the Patriotic Front, when they, in the beginning, that they were anti-Chinese, that kind of had this anti-Chinese platform. Is there anyone left in the political spectrum that has picked up this mantle at all, being anti-Chinese? <laughs> or are you just saying, still saying that they are? Um. Well, well, first thing is true. Well, you, you know it maybe better, but uh, uh, the uh, Patriotic Front, when they were in opposition, they were <laughs> strongly anti-Chinese, uh, and they were even hinting at uh, at uh, accepting uh, Taiwan as a separate country, mm. etc. So there were a lot of lot of that. Uh, as it got closer to uh, elections, uh, they said less and less about this. Uh, a few, a few things, and you know, at the at the night of the election, the first thing that the newly elected president Sata did was not invite the American ambassador or something. He invited the Chinese ambassador. First thing he did, and uh, to calm him down and say, you know, I didn't mean what I said <laughs> or whatever he said. I don't know, but it's something like that. <laughs> um, uh, there is a continuous skepticism amongst some, but it goes more on working conditions in the in the <coughs> Chinese uh, companies, uh, etc. But it's also used by the other side, uh, at least by the government side. You know, look at the work the Chinese workers; they they work uh, extremely more productively than the Ch than the, than the Zambians, and they don't eat more than twice a, a day. So they <laughs> look at them; we can learn from them. <laughs> uh, but there is still and there is still but there is still sort of. The, the democraticism on that level, and there is criticism against them bringing in too many of their own workers yeah. at, uh, at some of the sites. But uh, but sometimes just to sort of to, to sort it out, 
there are some people who still believe that they own most of the mines in Zambia and they don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think only 10% of the mines are actually owned by the, Zamb by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some minor ones, they have a smelter. But they buy more than half, half or may maybe more than half of the, of the copper, so that's important mm -hmm. part of the economy. Yeah, so amongst some of the activists and some of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the CSO, yes, there are still sort of complaints about the Chinese. But uh, from the government side, no. You and DP or any of the other parties haven't picked you up this? You and the, the other parties haven't picked up this criticism? Not so strongly, I don't think. No, I don't think you can say that. I mean, there, there is an issue about, the, you know, these, uh, about the seemingly corrupt credits. Mm. I think you mentioned the UNDP, I mean, China has UPND. a... UPND. Yeah, UPND. Uh, <laughs> I think just to also add uh, something to what you've said, uh, I think no one has been left to, to carry on the mantle because uh, mm. uh, precisely after Michael Sata won the Patriotic Front, uh, they held a luncheon with the Chinese and uh, said uh, the Chinese of, of, of MMD are not the Chinese of PF. Uh, <laughs> saying that uh, these Chinese that are under PF now are different from those that were banned. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it, it clearly shows how, how politicians uh, were bought by the Chinese. Because uh, with me, I feel our politicians have been born uh, by the temptation of uh, accepting them because uh, uh, contrary to what we've read, uh, Chinese people come with briefcase with a lot of dollars, and uh, uh, because of uh, because of poverty, a lot of uh, politicians uh, open their arms mm -hmm. and uh, welcome the Chinese, mm -hmm. and uh, this is what is happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, uh, we are not seeing a, a situation where the Chinese will be going back anytime soon. <laughs> Yes, um, I think um, I agree with uh, Joseph on the, the fact that if the Chinese are investing so much in the One, one Belt, One Roads initiative, mm. then to some extent they have to deal with the consequences of developing these roads and entering these countries that, not, that have not been so open to Chinese investment. But a question I had was um, regards to transparency of Chinese contracts in Africa. Is there any situation, any hope we have of complete transparency, even well, of contracts and of like, beneficial ownership of who owns such uh, the companies that are the Chinese companies that are in Africa right now, and who owns those companies as well, because they, some, they, some um, Chinese state-owned enterprises can buy others, so the whole chain or network of ownership. Um, and the second question I had was uh, a legal issue. So if there's a problem, like you mentioned with StarTimes, where is the jurisdiction? Where are these, these problems or legal issues tried? Mm -hmm. Are they tried according to African law, or are they tried um, according to Chinese law? Because this will affect obviously the results. Mm -hmm. OK, I've, I've been wanting to, 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 to address that specific area except that the discussion hasn't uh, been leading to, to that direction. Uh, transparency, yeah. Yes, yes, uh, transparency. Yes, uh, some loans that uh, the, the Chinese or, or, or China provide to Zambia are amount with a lot of corruption. We've seen uh, uh, the Chinese people giving us contracts to, to build roads, and uh, the projects 
are given back to the Chinese to do these contracts. So we haven't seen a clear tender process where uh, a lot of companies bid for for these projects so that they could they could be considered. But we've just seen uh, projects that are run by Avic International that also subcontract other Chinese companies to come and do the jobs. So we have a situation where uh, the Zambian contractors don't have access to 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 these projects. So it's 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 they are the projects that are financed by the Chinese and are done by the Chinese. And uh, if there's any Zambian in the pipeline, then that Zambian is is only subcontracted by a Chinese uh, uh, company to probably do the lesser part of the job and not the integral part of it. So transparency issues uh, are not there totally. Uh, and, 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 and that is the ugly truth. And that is why uh, most of the Zambian people have been unable to get employed even when there's so much construction going on because a lot of, of, of labor comes from China. And this is labor that is uh, not skilled labor. Even unskilled labor, we have Chinese people that come to push wheelbarrows, to mix, uh, to, uh, to mix cement and, and, and quarry, and uh, to, to do schedule works that could be done by ordinary Zambians so that they can have something by the end of the day. So everything is, is done by China, financed and done by China. Mm. And uh, it would be erroneous to, to say this transparency. It would mm. be erroneous. As to matters of, uh, of legal consequences as to who has the jurisdiction, inter say Zambia or China, that is something that I have not addressed my mind to. Uh, I think it intrigues uh, me to, to look into it because I, I, I never got to, to look at that uh, uh, angle. I've never thought myself that there would be any, any disputes that will arise out of these contracts. But uh, I would also like to share one thing. If, uh, if any contracts uh, between uh, Zambian employees and, uh, and uh, China contractors uh, ensues, then... Uh, our, our police force, our authorities uh, give it a blind eye, more especially if a Chinese person is, is in the room. Uh, a friend of mine shared with me that uh, uh, there was a phone that was, was stolen and was later discovered uh, uh, with a Chinese guy. And as the police officer was going to arrest that Chinese uh, 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 guy, he received a phone call from the highest uh, uh, police officer, the investigator general, to say, uh, leave that uh, Chinese alone and forget about the phone. So we, we are seeing a situation where uh, Chinese people are more favored than the, the indigenous people. As a matter of fact, this uh, pre precipitates me to cite even more other examples. Uh, there was a Chinese guy that shot a Zambian guy, and we never saw the due process of the law taking its course. This is just something that died a natural death, and those Chinese are nowhere to be seen now. We don't know whether they changed location or whether they are still within Zambia or they've gone back to China. So, what is causing the protection? Because of the high levels of corruption, 
the backdoor loans that our governments have gotten and they have seized the authority to talk back to defend the ordinary citizens and administer the law. Zambia is signatory to the EITI, the Extractive Industry yes. Transparency Initiative, and they have to, uh, in 2020, systematic disclosure is going to be uh, one of the important requirements. So to what extent do you think Zambia will fail in that? And, you th and if when countries fail, they are, they are ejected, so to speak, or suspended from the EITI. So do you think, in looking at five years down the line, when and if... Zambia is not able to make these systematic disclosures of who owns which mines and which companies, would you think leaving the EITI process, which is at least opens the door to some amount of um, like oversight, do you think kicking them out is the best possible um, reaction? Because we've seen that Niger has left, but with the news this morning, they will join uh, the EITI again. But so what is the way to go and five years down the line? Will they get more uh, exclusionist in regards to oversight committees or just leave it open and let them choose the parts of these standards they want to implement? I think, I think the best is for, for the Zambian uh, government to, to change the way of doing things so that uh, uh, they don't get affected uh, at international level. But of course I want to be too quick to mention that uh, most of uh, the international laws, international treaties are not uh, domesticated uh, in Zambia, so the effectiveness is, is not to a large extent. But for, for international cooperation, it's salient to change way of doing things and to comply with these national international standards. As we're running out of time, if you have any final thoughts on transparency and mm -hmm. legal issues, short and sweet. <laughs> yeah. I think the two of you know more about sort of transparency issues in, in, in Chinese companies. But I would I like to sort of counter uh, with a few examples. And I did mention this uh, ZTI, which uh, uh, Eiling was, which was uh, blacklisted from the uh, SPU, uh, the you Norwegian know, Oil Fund. Um, and uh, the fact is that they were, you know, they, they, they were accused of, and I think even sentenced for, for having corrupt practices in Zambia. So it is possible, that is the point. And I think the same thing happened to uh, one of the coal mines, uh, which was owned by by by, uh, by Chinese companies, which was seen as sort of misbehavior in in in, in several times. Uh, their license was cancelled, and uh, and uh, and I think it was given over to uh, Singapore, which uh, more Indian capital than uh, than. It. So it's 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 not that it's impossible to to deal with the with the, with the Chinese investors. And I think it was also interesting to say that the um, when it came to sort of the labor uh, content uh, and the and the number of Chinese workers, I recall that the president Sata himself was standing up and saying, "If that's a problem, that's our problem because it's our immigration which doesn't follow the rules." So again, it's, it didn't sort of to blame the Chinese for bringing in too many. He says it's we shouldn't allow these things to happen. If it still happens, that must be some other reasons for it. But policy-wise, it's it's possible to stop it. I think that's. Um, yeah. And finally, about EITI, I think that's an interesting question, and I'm not fully aware of the new requirements. But, but as I mentioned previously, I mean, 
ninety percent. It's most the, the the copper and nickel mines are generally not owned by Chinese. The Chinese have a small <coughs> percentage. They have a small percentage also. I think EITF tries to bring in other part. It's only the extractive industry, you know. Uh, so it's not doesn't cover hotels and mm. and and agriculture and all these things. Huh? So, but I think they've been trying to extend it to the gemstones. And there's a Chinese company involved there. Mm. So there might be issues, and, and it would be interesting to know whether uh, the disclosure would, would cover, uh, cover these. But for the rest of the companies, uh, well, uh, uh, Vedanta is one of the major owners of, uh, in, um, in, the, in the copper mines. Uh, it's registered in London. It's generally owned by in Indian investors. First Quantum is registered in Canada. It's mostly owned by Australians, uh, but um, but uh, it's Chinese are fairly small in terms of ownership in the extractive industry. So I don't know whether it will have an impact on their total standing. It would be interesting to see. Alex, some final remarks? Um, yes, and uh, that will bring me to uh, what I think will be one of the key uh, uh, findings coming out of uh, sort of uh, the lessons from from studying China in Africa, and that is that there are great variations in how African governments deals with China and Chinese companies. Uh, and uh, Chinese companies, Chinese authorities, they are good learners. They adopt to requirements. Mm -hmm. If you take one example. Infrastructure development in Zambia's neighbor, Angola. Uh, China heavily involved, both as funders and as you know, doing the construction work, and relied heavily even on Chinese manual labor to do the job. At the same time, uh, China was building the national roads north and south, east and west in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Chinese construction companies. Uh, and I was traveling along those uh, roads uh, at the time. I could hardly see a Chinese. You see Chinese supervisors and so on. The same company difference is that the contracts was funded by not by, uh, by the Rwandan government or the Chinese, but by the African Development Bank and the Kuwait Development Corporation. And they had uh, clauses there saying you have to rely and train locally. And the Chinese did it because that's what's in the contract. If you don't have it in the contract, uh, the Chinese will do the easy way. Where can we make most money? Yeah. Uh, but they adopt. Uh, similar with, with uh, you know, uh, a contract would usually, at least the big ones, would usually specify uh, a court where uh, disagreements uh, and break of contract has to be addressed. In the case of Star Times and uh, Ghana, it was London that was specified in the contracts. So they both turn to London to, to get a final settlement. But it's up to, uh, to Africa, uh, to uh, an African government to uh, put conditions in place to mm. ensure that they benefit mm. from mm. this Chinese mm. engagement. Mm. 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 Thank you so much. I think uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much for the great discussion. Thank you for your questions. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Thank you again for coming.